Chapter Twelve, Part One of South. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Corey Samuel. South The Story of Shackleton's Last Expedition, nineteen fourteen to nineteen seventeen, by Sir Ernest Shackleton. Chapter Twelve Elephant Island. Part One. The twenty-two men who had been left behind on Elephant Island were under the command of Wilde, in whom I had absolute confidence, and the account of their experiences during the long four-and-a-half months' wait while I was trying to get help to them I have secured from their various diaries, supplemented by details which I obtained in conversation on the voyage back to civilization. The first consideration which was even more important than that of food, was to provide shelter. The semi-starvation during the drift on the ice-floe, added to the exposure in the boats, and the inclemencies of the weather encountered after our landing on Elephant Island, had left its mark on a good many of them. Rickenson, who bore up gamely to the last, collapsed from heart failure. Blackborough and Hudson could not move. All were frost-bitten in varying degrees, and their clothes, which had been worn continuously for six months, were much the worse for wear. The blizzard which sprang up the day that we landed at Cape Wild lasted for a fortnight, often blowing at the rate of seventy to ninety miles an hour, and occasionally reaching even higher figures. The tents which had lasted so well, and endured so much, were torn to ribbons, with the exception of the square tent occupied by Hurley, James, and Hudson. Sleeping-bags and clothes were wringing wet, and the physical discomforts were tending to produce acute mental depression. The two remaining boats had been turned upside down, with one gunwale resting on the snow, and the other raised about two feet on rocks and cases, and under these the sailors and some of the scientists, with the two invalids, Rickenson and Blackborough, found head-cover at least. Shelter from the weather and warmth to dry their clothes was imperative, so Wilde hastened the excavation of the ice-cave in the slope which had been started before I left. The high temperature, however, caused a continuous stream of water to drip from the roof and sides of the ice-cave, and as with twenty-two men living in it the temperature would be practically always above freezing, there would have been no hope of dry quarters for them there. Under the direction of Wilde, they therefore collected some big flat stones, having in many cases to dig down under the snow which was covering the beach, and with these they erected two substantial walls, four feet high and nineteen feet apart. We are all ridiculously weak, and this part of the work was exceedingly laborious, and took us more than twice as long as it would have done had we been in normal health. Stones that we could easily have lifted at other times we found quite beyond our capacity, and it needed two or three of us to carry some that would otherwise have been one man's load. Our difficulties were added to by the fact that most of the more suitable stones lay at the farther end of the spit, some one hundred and fifty yards away. Our weakness is best compared with that which one experiences on getting up from a long illness. One feels well, but physically enervated. The site chosen for the hut was the spot where the stove had been originally erected on the night of our arrival. It lay between two large boulders, 
which, if they would not actually form the walls of the hut, would at least provide a valuable protection from the wind. Further protection was provided to the north by a hill called Penguin Hill, at the end of the spit. As soon as the walls were completed and squared off, the two boats were laid upside down on them, side by side. The exact adjustment of the boats took some time, but was of paramount importance if our structure was to be the permanent affair that we hoped it would be. Once in place, they were securely chocked up and lashed down to the rocks. The few pieces of wood that we had were laid across from keel to keel, and over this the material of one of the torn tents was spread and secured with guys to the rocks. The walls were ingeniously contrived and fixed up by Marsden. First he cut the now useless tents into suitable lengths. Then he cut the legs of a pair of sea-boots into narrow strips, and using these in much the same way that the leather binding is put round the edge of upholstered chairs, he nailed the tent-cloth all round the insides of the outer gunwalls of the two boats, in such a way that it hung down like a valance to the ground, where it was secured with spars and oars. A couple of overlapping blankets made the door, superseded later by a sack-mouth door, cut from one of the tents. This consisted of a sort of tube of canvas, sewn on to the tent-cloth, through which the men crawled in or out, tying it up as one would the mouth of a sack, as soon as the man had passed through. It is certainly the most convenient and efficient door for these conditions that has ever been invented. Whilst the side-walls of the hut were being fixed, others proceeded to fill the interstices between the stones of the end-walls with snow. As this was very powdery and would not bind well, we eventually had to supplement it with the only spare blanket and an overcoat. All this work was very hard on our frost-bitten fingers, and materials were very limited. At last all was completed, and we were invited to bring in our sodden bags, which had been lying out in the drizzling rain for several hours, for the tents and boats that had previously sheltered them had all been requisitioned to form our new residence. We took our places under Wilde's direction. There was no squabbling for best places, but it was noticeable that there was something in the nature of a rush for the billets up on the thwarts of the boats. Rickinson, who was still very weak and ill, but very cheery, obtained a place in the boat directly above the stove, and the sailors having lived under the Stancombe Wills for a few days, while she was upside down on the beach, tacitly claimed it as their own, and flocked up on to its thwarts as one man. There was one upstair billet left in this boat, which Wilde offered to Hussey and Lees simultaneously, saying that the first man that got his bag up could have the billet. Whilst Lees was calculating the pros and cons, Hussey got his bag and had it up just as Lees had determined that the pros had it. There were now four men up on the thwarts of the Dudley Docker, and the five sailors and Hussey on those of the Stancombe Wills, the remainder disposing themselves on the floor. The floor was at first covered with snow and ice, frozen in amongst the pebbles. This was cleared out, and the remainder of the tents spread out over the stones. Within the shelter of these cramped, but comparatively palatial quarters, cheerfulness once more reigned amongst the party. The blizzard, however, soon discovered the flaws in the architecture of their hut, and the fine drift-snow forced its way through the crevices between the stones forming the end walls. 
Jager sleeping-bags and coats were spread over the outside of these walls, packed over with snow and securely frozen up, effectively keeping out this drift. At first all the cooking was done outside, under the lee of some rocks, further protection being provided by a wall of provision cases. There were two blubber-stoves made from old oil-drums, and, one day, when the blizzard was unusually severe, an attempt was made to cook the meals inside the hut. There being no means of escape for the pungent blubber-smoke, the inmates had a rather bad time, some being affected with a form of smoke-blindness, similar to snow-blindness, very painful and requiring medical attention. A chimney was soon fitted, made by Kerr out of the tin lining of one of the biscuit-cases, and passed through a close-fitting tin grommet, sewn into the canvas of the roof, just between the keels of the two boats, and the smoke nuisance was soon a thing of the past. Later on, another old oil-drum was made to surround this chimney, so that two pots could be cooked at once on the one stove. Those whose billets were near the stove suffered from the effects of the local thaw caused by its heat, but they were repaid by being able to warm up portions of steak and hooshes left over from previous meals, and even to warm up those of the less fortunate ones, for a consideration. This consisted generally of part of the hoosh, or one or two pieces of sugar. The cook and his assistant, which latter job was taken by each man in turn, were called about 7 a.m., and breakfast was generally ready by about 10 a.m. Provision cases were then arranged in a wide circle round the stove, and those who were fortunate enough to be next to it could dry their gear. So that all should benefit equally by this, a sort of general post was carried out, each man occupying his place at meal-times for one day only, moving up one the succeeding day. In this way, eventually, every man managed to dry his clothes, and life began to assume a much brighter aspect. The great trouble in the hut was the absence of light. The canvas walls were covered with blubber-soot, and with the snowdrifts accumulating round the hut, its inhabitants were living in a state of perpetual night. Lamps were fashioned out of sardine-tins, with bits of surgical bandage for wicks. But as the oil consisted of seal-oil rendered down from the blubber, the remaining fibrous tissue being issued very sparingly at lunch, by the by, and being considered a great delicacy, they were more a means of conserving the scanty store of matches than of serving as illuminants. Wilde was the first to overcome this difficulty, by sewing into the canvas wall the glass lid of a chronometer-box. Later on three other windows were added, the material in this case being some celluloid panels from a photograph-case of mine which I had left behind in a bag. This enabled the occupants of the floor-billets, who were near enough, to read and sew, which relieved the monotony of the situation considerably. Our reading material consisted at this time of two books of poetry, one book of Nordenskjold's Expedition, one or two torn volumes of the Encyclopaedia Britannica, and a penny cookery book, owned by Marston. Our clothes, though never presentable, as they bore the scars of nearly ten months of rough usage, had to be continually patched to keep them together at all. As the floor of the hut had been raised by the addition of loads of clean pebbles, from which most of the snow had been removed, during the cold weather it was kept comparatively dry. When, however, the temperature rose to just above freezing point, as occasionally happened, 
the hut became the drainage pool of all the surrounding hills. Wilde was the first to notice it by remarking one morning that his sleeping bag was practically afloat. Other men examined theirs with a like result, so bailing operations commenced forthwith. Stones were removed from the floor and a large hole dug, and in its gloomy depths the water could be seen rapidly rising. Using a saucepan for a baler, they bailed out over one hundred gallons of dirty water. The next day one hundred and fifty gallons were removed, the men taking it in turns to bale at intervals during the night. One hundred and sixty more gallons were bailed out during the next twenty-four hours, till one man rather pathetically remarked in his diary, This is what nice, mild, high temperatures mean to us. No wonder we prefer the cold. Eventually, by removing a portion of one wall, a long channel was dug nearly down to the sea, completely solving the problem. Additional precautions were taken by digging away the snow which surrounded the hut after each blizzard, sometimes entirely obscuring it. A huge glacier across the bay behind the hut nearly put an end to the party. Enormous blocks of ice, weighing many tons, would break off and fall into the sea, the disturbance thus caused giving rise to great waves. One day Marsden was outside the hut digging up the frozen seal for lunch with a pick, when a noise like an artillery barrage startled him. Looking up he saw that one of these tremendous waves, over thirty feet high, was advancing rapidly across the bay, threatening to sweep hut and inhabitants into the sea. A hastily shouted warning brought the men tumbling out, but fortunately the loose ice which filled the bay damped the wave down so much that, though it flowed right under the hut, nothing was carried away. It was a narrow escape, though, as, had they been washed into the sea, nothing could have saved them. Although they themselves gradually became accustomed to the darkness and the dirt, some entries in their diaries show that occasionally they could realise the conditions under which they were living. The hut grows more grimy every day. Everything is a sooty black. We have arrived at the limit, where further increments from the smoking stove, blubber lamps and cooking gear are unnoticed. It is at least comforting to feel that we can become no filthier. Our shingle floor will scarcely bear examination by strong light, without causing even us to shudder and express our disapprobation at its state. Oil, mixed with reindeer hair, bits of meat, senegrass and penguin feathers, form a conglomeration which cements the stones together. From time to time we have a spring cleaning, but a fresh supply of flooring material is not always available, as all the shingle is frozen up and buried by deep rifts. Such is our home sweet home. All joints are aching through being compelled to lie on the hard, rubbly floor which forms our bedsteads. Again, later on, one writes, now that Wilde's window allows a shaft of light to enter our hut, one can begin to see things inside. Previously one relied on one's sense of touch, assisted by the remarks from those whose faces were inadvertently trodden on to guide one to the door. Looking down in the semi-darkness to the far end, one observes two very small, smoky flares that dimly illuminate a row of five, endeavouring to make time pass by reading or argument. These are Macklin, Kerr, Wordy, Hudson, and Blackborough, the last two being invalids. 
The centre of the hut is filled with the cases which do duty for the cook's bed, the meat and the blubber boxes, and a mummified-looking object, which is Lee's in his sleeping-bag. The near end of the floor-space is taken up with the stove, with Wilde and McIlroy on one side, and Hurley and James on the other. Marston occupies a hammock most of the night, and day, which is slung across the entrance. As he is large, and the entrance very small, he invariably gets bumped by those passing in and out. His vocabulary at such times is interesting. In the attic, formed by the two upturned boats, live ten unkempt and careless lodgers, who drop boots, mitts, and other articles of apparel onto the men below. Reindeer hairs rain down incessantly day and night, with every movement that they make in their molting bags. These, with penguin feathers and a little grit from the floor, occasionally savour the hooshes. Thank heaven man is an adaptable brute. If we dwell sufficiently long in this hut, we are likely to alter our method of walking, for our ceiling, which is but four foot six inches high at its highest part, compels us to walk bent double or on all fours. Our doorway, Cheetham is just crawling in now, bringing a shower of snow with him, was originally a tent entrance. When one wishes to go out, one unties the cord securing the door, and crawls or wriggles out, at the same time exclaiming, Thank goodness I'm in the open air! This should suffice to describe the atmosphere inside the hut, only pleasant when charged with the overpowering yet appetizing smell of burning penguin steaks. From all parts there dangles an odd collection of blubbery garments, hung up to dry, through which one crawls, much as a chicken in an incubator. Our walls of tent canvas admit as much light as might be expected from a closed Venetian blind. It is astonishing how we have grown accustomed to inconveniences, and tolerate, at least, habits which a little time back were regarded with a repugnance. We have no forks, but each man has a sheath-knife and a spoon, the latter in many cases having been fashioned from a piece of box-lid. The knife serves many purposes. With it we kill, skin, and cut up seals and penguins, cut blubber into strips for the fire, very carefully scrape the snow off our hut walls, and then, after a perfunctory rub with an oily penguin skin, use it at meals. We are as regardless of our grime and dirt as is the Eskimo. We have been unable to wash since we left the ship nearly ten months ago. For one thing, we have no soap or towels, only bare necessities being brought with us. And again, had we possessed these articles, our supply of fuel would only permit us to melt enough ice for drinking purposes. Had one man washed, half a dozen others would have had to go without a drink all day. One cannot suck ice to relieve the thirst, as at these low temperatures it cracks the lips and blisters the tongue. Still, we are all very cheerful. During the whole of their stay on Elephant Island, the weather was described by Wilde as simply appalling. Stranded as they were on a narrow, sandy beach, surrounded by high mountains, they saw little of the scanty sunshine during the brief intervals of clear sky. On most days the air was full of snowdrift blown from the adjacent heights. Elephant Island being practically on the outside edge of the pack, the winds which passed over the relatively warm ocean before reaching it clothed it in a constant pall of fog and snow. On April 25th, 
The day after I left for South Georgia, the island was beset by heavy pack-ice, with snow and a wet mist. Next day was calmer, but on the twenty-seventh, to quote one of the diaries, they experienced the most wretched weather conceivable, raining all night and day and blowing hard, wet to the skin. The following day brought heavy fog and sleet, and a continuance of the blizzard. April ended with a terrific windstorm which nearly destroyed the hut. The one remaining tent had to be dismantled, the pole taken down, and the inhabitants had to lie flat all night under the icy canvas. This lasted well into May, and a typical May day is described as follows. A day of terrific winds, threatening to dislodge our shelter. The wind is a succession of hurricane gusts that sweep down the glacier immediately south-southwest of us. Each gust heralds its approach by a low rumbling which increases to a thunderous roar. Snow, stones, and gravel are flying about, and any gear left unweighted by very heavy stones is carried away to sea. Heavy bales of senegrass and boxes of cooking gear were lifted bodily into the air and carried away out of sight. Once the wind carried off the floor-cloth of a tent which six men were holding on to and shaking the snow off. These gusts often came with alarming suddenness, and without any warning. Hussey was outside in the blizzard, digging up the day's meat, which had frozen to the ground, when a gust caught him, and drove him down the spit toward the sea. Fortunately, when he reached the softer sand and shingle below high water mark, he managed to stick his pick into the ground, and hold on with both hands, till the squall had passed. End of chapter 12, part 1